Hello and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it is the 110th. And it's an absolutely packed podcast this week with four interviews and six people. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the subjects this week are cheese, plastic recycling by bacteria, a new filling machine, and the Snackcelerator winner. It's been yet another crazily busy week for news and interviews, and I guess that's better than scrambling around looking for things. And it doesn't look like letting up either, as I've got lots more interviews to do over the next few days. So, who do we have on the show? Well, we chatted with Klaus Boupier Anderson, Senior Category Manager at Arla Foods Ingredients, Andy Duivedi, Sales Director at Evergreen Packaging, Professor Ariel Kushmaro from Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, and what may well be a first for the podcast, one interview with three people. John Talbot, CEO of the California Milk Advisory Board, Fred Schonenberg, CEO and founder of VentureFuel, and Jessica Levison, founder and CEO of Peekaboo. And we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. Fortunately for you, no time this week for me to talk about nothing, so we will keep things moving right along with some of this week's news headlines. Unilever is targeting 1 billion euros in sales from dairy and meat alternatives. Arjo Wiggins debuted its translucent barrier paper, which has dairy applications. And the Lactali brand Lactel has entered the Indian market. Abbott launched the first infant formula in Canada with an ingredient identical to the immune component in breast milk. We had an article on the cost of producing organic milk in Germany and if it's profitable for farmers. And the ice cream company High Road is growing through the purchase of a plant in Wisconsin. And while it may be the season to be jolly, well, almost, tis also the season for 2021 trends. Let's hope one of them is vaccinations. But Comax Flavors revealed its 2021 flavor trends, and Friesland Campina Ingredients also published its 2021 trend report. Tillamook has become a certified B corporation, and a Tetra Pak study reveals concerns over food safety, the environment, and, of course, the pandemic. Nature's One has come out with its babies-only A2 milk formulas, DSM has boosted its lactase portfolio, and Beneo has launched its instant functional rice starch, and we'll have an interview about that next week. And Chibani's coconut-based recipe is now fair trade certified. And you can read all of these and lots more at DairyReporter.com. Because it's a long one this week, let's head right on to the interviews, and we'll start with cheese. Arla Foods Ingredients has launched a new organic functional solution for cheese products that are cooking stable. To tell us more is Klaus Buchbier Anderson, Senior Category Manager at Arla Foods Ingredients. So I wonder if you could first tell me how the market for cooking cheese has grown and changed recently. It has grown and changed uh, recently, especially in the last couple of years. How can we see that? Uh, One thing is that there has been a big growth in the sales of uh, halloumi cheese, this uh, fantastic uh, cheese from Cyprus, uh, which you can put on the barbecue and so forth. This has really become popular in the main markets as a cooking cheese for meat substitution. There are also uh, many other indications uh, that where you see other similar types uh, like halloumi being put into the market to substitute meats both in the form of sausages, uh, meatballs and also like burger patties etc. see a lot of that for example in Germany. We've seen a lot of that uh, also in the UK and less uh, in the States. But really in Western Europe and North America we see a lot of that. Uh, We have also seen uh, the leading fast food chains put burgers into the market with cheese uh, inside. So you you find evidence that uh, the cooking cheese market is growing and there is a great interest uh, for using uh, cheese for cooking to replace, for example, uh, meat. 
Do you think that some of that has happened because more people are cooking at home because of the pandemic? They might be so, uh, but of course uh, also uh, combined a lot with the big interest in uh, the population in, in Europe and North America to contribute to the sustainability in our society. And there are many different surveys where consumers uh, reveal that they are trying and they would like to try even more to take out meat from the meals once or twice or even three days per week. And what are the challenges with creating cheese that's good for cooking with? It's a very good question. It's a lot about textures, it's a lot about uh, flavors, and it's a lot about the nutritional composition of the cheese. First of all, you need to create a cheese that has the functionality required to undergo the cooking steps uh, without uh, melting and without uh, burning uh, on the surfaces and also uh, that the flavor is, you can say, adjustable but to the milder side that it doesn't taste for mature cheeses like that. And then if you do the comparison towards uh, meat, that the composition and the ratio between, for example, fat and proteins can be compared uh, to meat because the consumers are very focused on protein these days and they know you need certain portions of protein throughout the day and how much for each meal would be ideal. They're very focused on that. And that's one of the advantages with meat. So these advantages also needs to be found in the substitution, for example, the cooking cheese. And what kind of research did you have to do to create a product that meets so many different criteria? Because there are so many different recipes, so many different cheeses. It must be difficult. Yeah, that's true. Uh, first of all, we did some research towards the texture. What was the desired uh, range of textures? And uh, we uh, found out that we should be aiming for something to the softer side compared to, for example, halloumi, uh, which many consumers we believe they think it's, it's too hard. And especially uh, if you wait 10, 15 minutes after taking off the barbecue, for example, it starts to become uh, quite hard. So we were aiming for more softer textures, uh, also because then it's more easy to consume, for example, uh, children. That was one part of it. The other thing was uh, the research that we did uh, in terms of finding out how should we compose uh, such a cheese, which should be the ideal components, uh, and especially to the, to the protein side, that delivers the texture and the flavor and the, the composition uh, that I mentioned before. Could you give me a bit more details on the new Neutralac FO7922 and what it does and what it addresses? Yes, it's a uh, milk protein that is available in conventional but also organic uh, form that is uh, derived directly from milk with our filtration techniques, uh, that's all. and implemented in a cooking cheese recipe like we recommend it uh, delivers uh, first of all a production technique which is quite fast and where you have 100% uh, yield and this is a bit abnormal in the cheese uh, industry uh, secondly it delivers a broad range of end applications going from burger patties and barbecue cheese towards something you can use in a sausage uh, or a meatball and uh, another possibility is to use it uh, actually as a, in a kebab style cuisine. So there's many uh, possibilities. And then the taste as a starting point, it's mild. And that is an advantage because then it's easy to design the flavor, whether you want to bring in, for example, yeast extract to, to give the umami taste a boost, or you need to add herbs and spices. Uh, that is uh, easy to do then. And so it applies to a variety of different cheeses then? Yes, well, we have tested a lot for barbecue and pan frying and deep frying. And in all of these cooking methods, it delivers the cooking performance. Uh, and it's uh, quite easy to bread it before. So you can make something for a burger or like a German schnitzel. 
Uh, and then also for cooking, for example, in uh, Asian style soups, or could also be for curry dishes to simply add uh, diced cooking cheese or in slices into it while it's cooked, like uh, it's known from, uh, for example, India, that we use paneer cheese for curry dishes, similar to that. And then finally, uh, it can be uh, minced and uh, used in the preparation of meatballs, uh, lasagnas, uh, sausages, uh, wraps, etc. And how important is the fact that it's organic? Yeah, I think it's important to a quite uh, large uh, number of the consumers because this path that we are on and especially those looking for this are on, is a lot uh, driven by uh, a naturally healthy trend. We know that underneath uh, natural, healthy, organic is a strong attribute to that, to underline that these products are really natural and, and also healthy. It's linked a lot together. And for your customers, what kind of claims are they able to use for their products? One of the recommended compositions uh, that we bring out is... Uh, 20% of protein and uh, 10 or less percent of fat. And that is actually enabling increased protein claims in, in most markets. And when you think that the proteins uh, here contains all the essential amino acids, I think that's a strong uh, USP also for a cooking cheese uh, made like this from this protein source. Normally, we are used to cheese uh, with much higher fat and lower protein, but here we, we put it the other way around. I think that makes it also very interesting. And next we go to some more cutting-edge science, and that's BGN Technologies, a technology transfer company that is part of Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel, which has announced it has signed a research collaboration agreement with Portuguese plastic recycling company Eco-Iberia. The agreement covers the field of plastic recycling by bacteria, which is both interesting and exciting. And to tell us about it is one of the researchers from the university, Professor Ariel Cushmaro. We can just start by if you could tell me a little bit about um, what BGN Technologies is. Okay, so VGN uh, Technology is the Ben-Gurion University company that commercialize different uh, technologies. This kind of uh, company, I mean, BGN, they are the link between the university and research and the industry. And so does it do have partnerships with different industries around the world? Yes, I mean, they're, they're, they're in charge of licensing technology, patents, all those things. Every university today, they have this kind of company. They're doing the spin-offs and uh, doing licensing patents and uh, all those things. You know, this is part of, you know, the engines of science and research, you know, that some of technologies you seek for funding from the industry and hopefully it will develop to technologies that will be commercialized and obviously the university will be profit from that. In the end, I mean, also humanity, but also the university. What was the um, collaboration, or how did you get into the collaboration with Echo Iberia? Me and another professor, that his name is uh, Alex Ivan, uh, we already work in the field on, of plastic biodegradation and polymer biodegradation for the last 20 years. And the main uh, topic that we're working on it's degradation of plastic or different kind of plastic or polymer related to plastic with uh, microorganisms and enzymes. In the last few years, we also worked on polyethylene and also in, uh, on PET. PET is the, the plastic that is uh, in all the bottles, the drinking bottles are made of. We also published a few articles and the company actually approached us and ask us if we can develop a process for recycling uh, this material for reuse. So uh, we suggest the project and they were happy to fund it. The technology is not there. This is what we have to understand. Now we, we're working on the stage of a proof of concept and later stage in the year, 
hopefully start to develop industrial uh, process for recycling plastic. So the main research will be uh, using bacteria that we already managed to isolate and to optimize the degradation process, also fit it to industrial processes. The solution that you're developing, how does that work? It's just simply the bacteria degrade the... So the main, yeah, the main uh, process will, uh, will be the bacteria, in order to grow, you need to break down the carbon uh, chain of the pet or polyethylene, but mainly in this project it will be pet. Uh, and actually, in the past, the enzymes will break down the connection between the long chain of the polymers, and then it will be easier to separate it and then to recycle it. When it does the breakdown, what product do you end up with after the bacteria have broken it down? Okay, so hopefully the product will be the original molecules that you building up from them the pet. So it's uh, ethylene glycol and uh, perfluxate per acid. And is that something that can then be recycled? I mean, can that be utilized once you... Hopefully we can purify those material and then use them again to make the plastic again. I guess you're only just starting in this, but the, the goal is, I guess, to be able to produce this at a large scale? Yeah, yeah. So after one year, after demonstrating the uh, what we call proof and concept, is to go and scale it up to industrial systems. But this is, of course, after we will show that we can uh, do the process as, as we think we can. And in terms of the size of, of all of this, how like how quickly does it break down, and how how much can it break down? So. This uh, bacteria probably can break down all the material, and how long it will take, it depends on the condition. So it could take, you know, the process probably several weeks or months, but you have to remember that in, when we're building a, a bioreactor, it's the density of the microorganism is what's important. So if you have a very high population of bacteria that are doing the job, then it will be faster. How long is the project that you're working on with um, Echo Iberia? It will be, the contract is for one year. We have possibility for extension for another year. And this, is, of course, depends on the results. What I think that in this kind of project, it's some kind of a trend that the industry is looking for green solutions for recycling uh, materials. And I think it's, it's very important because till now, most of the industries didn't uh, look this way on the products or processes, and I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. If you can come up with a, a biological way of breaking down the plastics, it's um, something that will be much more environmentally friendly, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, another issue, there is few groups around the world that are working on uh, biodegradation of different kinds of plastics. And this kind of project, hopefully, it will uh, go to the application. And I know that it's important environmentally, but in terms of the cost of it, is it something that will be as cost-effective as other methods? You know, other methods, it's mainly dump it. So it will be better than that. I mean, today, most of the materials, I mean, the plastic materials, the pets, I mean, the bottles, there is some recycling, but most of it is or to landfills or, or, or just dumping the environment. So yeah. in Europe, there is a good recycling now, but still you don't know what to do with the recycled material because the quality is not good enough. But hopefully in this project, we will manage to produce the start materials and then the quality will be as it was before and it will go for new production. So it will be not a problem. Again, you have to understand that don't give like a title that there is a breakthrough and we're saving the world. It's not yet. We're working on it, but it's not there yet.
We're heading to the US now to talk packaging with Andy Duvedi, sales director at Evergreen Packaging, about, among other things, its latest piece of equipment, the EH84. All right, could we start by getting a little bit of background on Evergreen Packaging? Sure. So Evergreen Packaging Equipment is based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Dairy heritage dates back to 1880. In fact, this year we are celebrating our 140th anniversary. Our roots can be traced back to John Cherry, who developed the first insulated cream can in 1880. At a similar time, David Burrell introduced the first American centrifugal cream separator. The two would merge their businesses and form the Cherry Burrell Corporation. Many years later in the 1990s, our name changed to Evergreen Packaging Equipment. We maintained our dairy focus throughout our ownership and name changes and began manufacturing gable top packaging equipment in 1966. So we have been doing so for the last 54 years. As needs of processors have evolved over the years, we have continued to provide fresh packaging solutions with state-of-the-art gable top filling equipment and the main markets that we focus on include the refrigerated dairy, juice, liquid eggs, and plant-based products. And you just recently participated in Pack Expo. How did that go for the company? The show went well for us, Jim. Uh, thanks for asking that. Overall, the show was really positive for us. Many of our important customer base spoke with us through online chat or over the phone about the EH84 which is our flagship half-gallon extended long-life filler that we launched at the show. And it was highly encouraging to receive such a positive response from our customer base on uh, the EH84. Needless to say, we would have loved to see our customers and suppliers face-to-face in Chicago. But given the current situation, the virtual show provided a reasonable alternative. What did you have to do in order to be able, obviously you can't send everybody a, a sample of the equipment and you can't show it to them in person because there's no event. How did you sort of tackle the challenges involved with a virtual environment? Sure. Uh, we prepared several pieces of digital marketing collateral to share with our customers on the EH84, including a full-fledged video. Uh, The video clearly shows all the important areas of the machine and their respective customer benefits. And even before the pandemic-restricted travel and face-to-face meetings, Jim, we had been developing our sales and marketing collateral in a digital format to easily share it with our customers and prospects. So we contacted most of our customers and prospects through email. We also had a direct mail campaign. And uh, many of the customers got back to us requesting more marketing and sales collateral. We shared the video link. That way, we were able to overcome uh, most of the issues in not being able to see our customers face-to-face for meetings. So it worked out pretty well. Could you give me some of the details on the EH84 and uh, what it can do? Sure, sure, Jim. So the EH84 is now our flagship extended long life, or as we call it, ELL, gable top packaging filler for the half gallon or two liter size. It is designed to meet the needs of companies involved in the processing of dairy, juice, and plant-based products. The EH84 can handle fill volumes of 40 ounces, which is approximately 1.2 liters, all the way up to 64 ounces or two liters at speeds of up to 8,400 cartons per hour. The filler also has many shelf life optimization features, including a self-contained clean-in-place and sterilize-in-place or CIP-SIP system, many environmental control features, carton decontamination, and a hermetic fill system to maintain product quality. What dairy products can it be used with, or dairy alternative products as well, I guess? Yes, it can be used for all types of liquid dairy products and plant-based alternatives such as almond milk, soy milk, etc. And we really think the EH84 will enable our customers to increase plant efficiency through longer production runs, 
maximize distribution and reduce costs with fewer larger deliveries to distant markets leaving optimal shelf life at the point of sale reduce product returns from expired short term pull dates and just overall enhance their retail shelf presence among numerous beverage choices that are available today and are there any other benefits that it has for users like is it cost effective yes so all the major drive system components on the eh84 gen are servo driven and this will result in repeatable package performance and automatic control of fill volumes and profiles based on product and carton size our customers will also be pleased by the ease of use greatly simplified maintenance and filling accuracy of the filler the eh84 has high visibility of components and easily accessible areas reducing maintenance time for example the infeed racks where the carton blanks are loaded on the filler and the mandrels are located at the outer edge of the machine for easy access in addition the infeed has a really ergonomic design which provides operator comfort and ease of loading we also have an optional pouch pack system on the filler which will enhance customer convenience and preserve product freshness and last but not least as with all evergreen packaging gable top fillers the eh84 is backed by our 24/7 oem parts and technical service to fulfill customer needs what advantages does it have over other machines that are already on the market well what i would say jim is that evergreen packaging equipment is known for its robust design and engineering capability high quality manufacturing and our unparalleled customer support and service so we believe the eh84 is the best in class extended long life half gallon filler available on the market today due to its superior sanitation features state of the art servo technology as well as ease of use and maintenance is this a product that's available just in the us or is it available beyond the us it is available uh, globally we manufacture it in cedar rapids but we market it and sell it all across the globe and how easy is it for operators to use so the eh84 design makes it really easy for our customers to operate and clean the machine all the frequently used areas of the machine including the infeed and mandrels are easily accessible in addition the eh84 will enable our customers to experience the benefits of accurate servo controlled filling by using servos on the mandrels our customers can gain considerable control over the positioning capability they will also be able to move the mandrels without having to cycle the machine for quick carton size change over in terms of cleaning and sanitation similar to our other extended long life fillers the eh84 is equipped with many features some of them are hot water and steam sterilization of product contact surfaces uh, we use 35% peroxide and high temperature air to assure decontaminated carton product contact surfaces we use self contained cip and sip for product piping systems and then it has several environmental control features including dual iso5 hepa or high efficiency particulate air filtration system which acts like a self contained clean room inside of a self contained clean room auto sanitize system for incidental contact surfaces sterile air for product tank and vent system condensate control system and the hermetic filling which is essentially the use of double diaphragm on our fill system uh, to keep the keep the environmental air out So those are all the cleaning and sanitation features available on the EHAD 4J. Now it's to the longer interview and that's because it's with three people. Recently the Rail California Milk Snack Accelerator Dairy Snack Innovation Competition was held which was created by the California Milk Advisory Board and Venture Fuel and it wound up last week when the final four became the winner. and the winner was Peekaboo Organics with its ice cream with hidden veggies 
First, we chatted with John Talbot, CEO of the California Milk Advisory Board, and Fred Schonenberg, CEO and founder of Venture Fuel. And later on in the interview, we bring in the founder of Peekaboo, Jessica Levison. So I guess if we could get started by, if you could give me a little bit about the background a couple of years ago, how the Snack Accelerator was devised and what the thought process was for putting this together in the first place. This is John, by the way. You know, it's no secret to anyone in the industry that at least fluid milk has been declining for years and years. The rest of dairy is doing very well. Uh, and actually growing. But a couple of years ago, we started thinking about, you know, how can we reinvigorate the dairy category? And at least initially, we were looking primarily at fluid milk. And our first effort last year was all focused around fluid milk. And, you know, I think it was you know, created under the premise that innovation is the lifeblood of consumer products. We have to be fresh and relevant to our evolving consumers. And to do that, we have to somehow stimulate innovation within our industry. So that was really kind of the precursor thought to this event. And again, as I said, last year, it was really more around innovative ideas in fluid milk. And this year, uh, with the pandemic, um, and everybody kind of staying at home cooking at home, eating at home, snacking is way up, actually. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to focus a little more on snacking. And snacking is a great partner for dairy uh, because of so many of the benefits that dairy can bring to snacking products. So we put this idea together, and uh, lo and behold, it really really took off this year. And I don't know, Fred, maybe you can fill in with a little more of the color around the event itself and how it worked. Yeah. I mean, I think just from a you know, where it started standpoint, John alluded to it, you know, innovation is the ultimate growth accelerator for any business or, or category or industry. And the whole idea behind this was could we deliver and create almost like an innovation flywheel, right? New ideas, new products, new ways to think about dairy from, from the consumer perspective with entrepreneurs who weren't necessarily, you know, had their whole career in dairy, right? So that fresh thinking that excited and reinvigorated, as John said, and, and I think as we talk more, you'll see, you know, we brought in judges, we brought in mentors, investors, retailers, uh, and, and the whole idea as well as consumers. And the idea was, could we jumpstart and spark sort of enthusiasm around dairy overall by seeing the potential for it, whether that was in the first milk accelerator uh, last year, which was all around uh, liquid dairy, or, or now to the snack accelerator. And we'll talk about how much it grew from year one to year two, but that enthusiasm, right? That was the thing that struck me when we did this last year was whether it was a dairy farmer or a producer or just a consumer that came to the event, there was just this palpable like excitement around this. And, and that's really what what we're hoping to spark, uh, as well as then these products coming to market and, and driving demand for dairy. And so how did the partnership form between CMAB and Venture Fuel? <laughs> well, it's, it's a funny story. We love to tell this story. Friend and I actually met at a conference probably three years ago now, and it was a, uh, a rather sleepy Saturday morning uh, at the end of a long conference and uh, I, I went to the session primarily to get breakfast, sat down next to Fred, and we just started talking. And I'd wanted to do something like this for a while, but didn't know how to go about it. And, you know, we just all of a sudden kind of got stuck on this idea of marrying the rich entrepreneurial spirit of California along with, you know, the presence of this really big burgeoning, growing dairy industry in California and trying to figure out, you know, how can we create more innovation in this category, in this in this industry? And Fred's company and Fred himself just had all the right makings, you know, for this kind of a of an event. It was really fun, Jim. So I, I sat next to John and we immediately started talking. 
I knew very little about the dairy industry at, at our first conversation. And by the time breakfast was done, I was so excited about the potential around dairy. Uh, I think I, I stalked John on email <laughs> for weeks being like, hey, what if we did this? Have you thought about this? And you know, it, it had less to do with our business and more about just a, a general enthusiasm after the conversation. And we really started noodling on what it would look like. And then actually a, a dairy farmer at, at one of John's events unrelated to us was like, you know what we should do is, is, is a shark tank type of event to bring in new ideas. And John was like, I've been talking to this crazy guy for a long time. He knows how to do this. And really that helped solidify what we were thinking about. And then you know, we started really working closely with John's team at CMAB on what was the most value, what were the important things to deliver. And then what we do uh, is, is we're able to tap in. We have a global innovation network uh, of over 500 investors, incubators, accelerators all around the world that we tap into for our corporate clients. And we were able to go to them and say, hey, you know, we're, we're looking at dairy innovation. Who do you know? What's out there? Uh, and we really just started doing like a really deep scouting. And lo and behold, found all sorts of really interesting companies, as well as uh, just by announcing the competition, sparked other entrepreneurs that maybe weren't thinking of dairy uh, to start submitting ideas and really galvanizing some excitement around it. And of course, doing one is one thing and you've got all of the teething troubles that go with it and all of the issues that may happen. What did you learn from that first one that you were able to bring into the second one? Well, I think from my perspective, the one thing we learned was, number one, there are a lot of people out there with a lot of really great ideas. And part of it is just finding a way to get those ideas to rise to the surface and just that ideation process stimulated so much interest and excitement among our industry that it generated a buzz of sorts. And I think that energy was something that we really wanted to tap into longer term. And, and thus was why we repeated it again this year. It's just the idea and getting the ideas out there and then finding a way to bring the right people together, connecting the dots we talk about between the ideas, the entrepreneurs, the producers and processors in the dairy industry, and even potentially investors. And that all of a sudden, you know, creates the impetus to, to get some of these things to happen. Yeah, and I would say in terms of things we learned, John sort of capitalized on on what was the the wow moment was this energy source from the first event uh, and the enthusiasm and bringing together that whole dairy ecosystem. One of the things you know we thought about was like, hey, we we need to get more investors to pay attention to this, and also consumers. Um, so for for this year's competition, we actually included twenty five hundred consumers uh, who voted on the products as well. And what was kind of cool was we asked them a question around after seeing the products, did it impact their perception of dairy? And over 30% said it positively impacted and changed their perception for the better, uh, which was a huge number uh, in consumer research land. And we knew that was going to be the case because it's so fun. It's so interesting. It's thought provoking, right? So part of the learnings we had from the first one was like, how do we get this out to more people and let them get excited about what is going on. So that was that was something we really focused on for this year. And then of course, all hell broke loose and there was a pandemic. How did that affect things? Well, you know, one of the things we just loved about last year was the live event, the finals. There was so much anticipation and lots of people got to try the product and we got, you know, just again, all this energy going. And this year, the thought of not having that live event almost canceled it, but we kept working it and Fred and his team put together a bunch of great ideas for how we could do this virtually. And <laughs> despite some technology challenges, I think it actually came off really well. Yeah. And, you know, it, it created a fun challenge, right? How do you do a product innovation sampling competition if you can't be in the same room? One of the things that, that we do with, with lots of clients is we look at new technologies and how they can use those technologies to grow. We put that on ourselves and said, okay, what new tech is out there that can make this happen virtually? 
so I mentioned the sort of bringing in the 2,500 consumers. We did a, a completely mobile consumer research startup uh, that handled that for us. We created commercials for all 16 semifinalists, all remotely. The production team that created the commercial never met any of the products in person. We also brought in a esports uh, and, and gaming production house to create the finals uh, and semifinals that were streamed live on YouTube so that it wasn't a dreary you know, Zoom meeting, right? A dreary demo day that nobody really wants to watch. The idea was, could we take what would be seen as a limitation of not being in person and use that to spark even more excitement and get more people involved? And certainly the logistic challenges of getting ice cream to judges all around the country was eye-opening. But I mean, think how fun that was for those judges, right? And we, we brought the who's who of the sort of snacking industry to be judges. And on their doorstep, up shows, you know, delicious peekaboo ice cream. They get cheese bits, little, you know, premium cheese to snack on. Uh, so the feedback we got was they got to share that with their family. They got really excited. It was, you know, sort of like the Christmas morning effect. They got a gift uh, to try. So certainly we love the in-person piece of it and we look forward to that in the future but it was it was a fun challenge to overcome and i think we were able to do it well do you think obviously you'll i assume that you'll do this again do you think that the online nature of it has changed how you will approach it in the future i'm sure it will i i still think there's something about the live event if we can do it that makes sense but the extension you know, that we created in the virtual event um, has been wonderful. I mean, we had so many more people that could, you know, watch the event last night than than we could have ever done live. So I think there ultimately will be a nice combination of both. I agree. And, you know, what's, what's cool is we're able to get maybe more elite judges, more elite mentors, uh, because they didn't have to hop on a plane uh, and, and spend a day. Uh, and they all enjoyed that. And, and I do think we'll go back to in-person for pieces of this. But it allowed us to get bigger audiences to all the events, allowed us to get mentors that maybe didn't have time otherwise. And, and the judges were just unbelievable uh, in terms of their backgrounds and the way that they were able to help the founders. So I think th there were definitely upsides to uh, the, the virtual environment. At the beginning of this, how many applications did you get in order to whittle this down to eventually one? Yeah, we we received 76 applications, uh, and I will call them qualified applications, too. We actually received a, a lot more than that number, but there were very specific rules for this. And what's, what's really interesting is from the first program to the second program, the applications jumped by 153%. And that talks to that enthusiasm and the world word got out and, and the, the finalists from last year were sharing on social media. Hey, anybody else that's starting a dairy competition, you should come check this out. We did it. It was unbelievable. Uh, so there was a true momentum uh, jump that, that came from that. And, you know, it was because of the huge number of entries that we decided to change the platform and this idea of kind of taking off on March Madness and, and creating two separate categories because we started looking at the entrance and, you know, you obviously get some sweet-oriented snack foods and, and then more savory-oriented snack foods. And then, you know, well, if we put them head-to-head, -head, that's not always going to be fair. The sweet product is always going to probably get the, the preference over the more savory so we separated it and and it was kind of fun to create this kind of head to head matchup between sweet and savory and ultimately sweet won out uh but it was a lot of fun what are the criteria that you used in order to make the decisions as to which ones made the final four and then eventually the winner there were sort of four main criteria at the beginning there was a tremendous amount of vetting right looking at who the companies were their ideas their presentations their backgrounds what they had done previously uh you know did we think they could move to market so so we did a, a tremendous amount behind the scenes uh but when we got down to the semifinals and finals there were four consistent criteria one uniqueness right was this something that isn't in the market that would change the way people think they could you know almost create a category uh, or a niche within a category. Uh, scalability, 
right? We didn't want this to be just something flashy. We wanted it something that could become a, a staple, something that people, you know, were going to buy for multiple years and really drive serious volume. Uh, the founder team is a big one, is really looking at the founder. Are they the type of entrepreneur that can really take this uh, somewhere special? And lastly, of course, it is a food competition, so taste was a big factor. Obviously, we're down to just one now, but the ones that didn't make it that far, do you still maintain a relationship with those companies afterwards? Because obviously, you don't want to sort of ditch them and, and have them not succeed. Absolutely. I, I mean, there were so many great ideas out there. I, I would say of the 16 finalists, at least half of them are very close to making it to market already. So we will be right there to help them out in, in whatever way we can. Unfortunately, it's just the financial support will be limited to the to the top two. But part of the program was to help these ideas get a little stronger hold and to help support them and provide input in their development process. So, you know, again, we will continue to track all of them and help in any way we can uh, to help the founders get their products to market. Yeah, and I think, John, you touched on something really interesting there. The, the mentor program that we built, we learned a lot from last year as well. So we've looked at everything that we thought could help these companies get from where they were to the next level. And that could be, how do you create a commercial? Every company had a commercial created. Do they need introductions to distributors or brokers or retailers, you know, or an investor, right? And, and how could we connect them with mentors that could help them think about branding, packaging, all these different things? And I mean, the mentors are from Mondelez and Nestle, Hershey's, Whole Foods, right? Like it, it was a kind of who's who of who's out there. But I will say that the secret sauce about this is CMAB is that they stay involved even after the competition and they've been helping last year's finalists. They're certainly already in talks today with semifinalists that didn't make it about who should they talk to? How do they source the right dairy? How do they export, right? Like all these questions, their, their team is just phenomenal about helping. And, and of course, I, I can help more on the, the marketing side and more on the investor connection side. Uh, so together, we really are able to kind of create like a, a virtual MBA on how to launch a company. How do you decide when you got down to that final four, how did you decide on the winner? Because all four were quite diverse and all seemed as though they had great potential. Yeah, so the, the criteria was the same, right? So uniqueness, scalability, founder team, and taste. But the judges that we had all, all voted on all of those. And then they also stack ranked, meaning they looked at who they would put in their, their shopping cart. And we had all the fan votes do the same thing. Uh, and so what we were able to do is see across the, the eight final judges plus the fan vote, who won on taste, uh, founder team scalability, all of that, as well as who was the company that they sort of valued the highest. And so we, we tabulated all of that and came down. And I, I'll tell you, it was really hard for the judges. My, my favorite part about this competition that nobody knows about, except for John and I and the judges, is we had a private chat going on throughout the competition with just the judges and the banter back and forth about this startup versus that one. What were the strengths and weaknesses in market? I mean, it's just fascinating. For Peekaboo was the clear winner uh, last night with cheese bits, you know, right at their heels uh, in second place. But really all four, uh, we believe, are going to be very, very strong companies with, with lots of room to scale. What about 2021? Have you already started on that um, for the next <laughs> next version? Uh, a few conversations, but uh, certainly we will find something. And and again, we will probably morph it again based on what the, the needs of the, the industry are. Um, you know, we've done fluid milk now, snacking. We've even talked about po the possibility of doing something a little different like packaging or uh, something like that. But we will do something like this again in the future. Jim, it's, it's really interesting, too, is that we're already getting applications, emails, people asking about how they can submit ideas, which is really exciting and just speaks to the success of the first two programs and, and the potential and, and the ideas are all over the place uh, in, in the best way possible. 
thinking about different ways, whether it is dairy-based alcohol, whether it is clothing made with upcycled materials from from dairy farms. It's it's super interesting to see. And uh, as John mentioned, there there's a lot of different ways we can continue this, all in the spirit of you know how can we drive more demand for the dairy farmers of California. And I guess at this point, we should indeed bring in the winner. Obviously, very excited. That goes without saying. But did you really expect that you were going to win? Um, I mean, I was so excited to win the competition. And I certainly had no expectations of winning. The competitors, you know, the other three brands were super innovative. And the products looked delicious. And I was getting hungry just watching their presentations. And I'd sort of seen them also in the semifinals. So I, I knew that they were really strong brands with strong products. So I was just very overjoyed and surprised when I finally discovered that I won. So could you give me some background on the company, how and why and where you started it? Sure. So I actually was practicing law for many years and I thought, you know, let me open up an ice cream shop. Let me learn how to make ice cream, which was ultimately my passion. So about 12 years ago in my town of Surfside, Florida, I opened up an ice cream shop and started making ice cream from scratch. And, you know, throughout the years, we got a lot of requests from local hotels and restaurants for really innovative flavors. And many times vegetables were part of the flavor profile. So a cucumber honeydew, a carrot mango, that type of thing. But it wasn't until I started having kids and I started refusing to eat their veggies that I thought, I wonder if I could turn this concept on its head and now hide, you know, the veggie from the flavor profile so that it just tastes like indulgent ice cream that has all these nutritional benefits of the veggies. Um, and then from there, you know, my kids were the original taste testers and it evolved into a product that I thought would really resonate with consumers nationwide or even globally. So we launched to market last year. The concept of putting veggies in any product is a bit like the princess and the pea story where you can like put up 400 mattresses and the princess will still find the pea at the bottom. I mean, and, and, and kids are kids are really good at if you try and hide something in there, they'll still be able to taste it. You said about trying trialing it with your kids where they kind of like, well, no, you can still taste that. Or how, how did that go? <laughs> I think I think the pea is one of those uh, magical veggies that everyone can sense because actually peas did not work in any of my formulas, believe it or not. They have not been able to ta uh, taste any of the veggies. When I was iterating, I kept adding veggies actually until they noticed. So the peekaboo formula that you taste uh, in stores is the maximum amount of veggies that I could sneak into a pint of ice cream or a mini snack size of ice cream without the vegetable flavor being noticed. So, I mean, I, I think you'd be pressed to find anybody out there that would be able to identify which veggie or whether they're even veggies in Peekaboo ice cream. And what flavors do you have? And what, what's in them in terms of the veggies? Currently, uh, our five original flavors are cotton candy with hidden beets, vanilla with hidden zucchini, chocolate with hidden cauliflower, strawberry with hidden carrots, and mint chip with hidden spinach. And this year we launched two brand new flavors, unicorn, which is a birthday cake flavor with a birthday fr cake frosting swirl, and that also has hidden zucchini, and cookie dough, which has hidden zucchini. Obviously for younger children that can't read the packaging, they can't tell what's in it, but for the older ones, does that make any difference, the fact that it has names like zucchini on it? You'd, you'd think that it would deter kids, and certainly I did, so our very original packaging, you know, the fact that there were veggies in the container was very obscure and very hard to find because I thought kids would be deterred. And what we learned from both parents and even kids is that if it tastes delicious, they love the fact that there's veggies. So a, a parent, child, human on earth, nobody's going to eat something that doesn't taste delicious. So as soon as we've crossed that sort of barrier and it tastes delicious, the fact that there's veggies on the container now front and center is uh, definitely a value added for the kids. They use it as leverage to get more because now all of a sudden it's like, can I have some spinach? Can I have some beef? You know, it's like, it's not ice cream. It's got veggies in it. It's not regular ice cream. It's better than regular ice cream. So, so it creates this really 
fun moment to even start the conversation about veggies. Um, and they become a lot less scary when you realize you can incorporate them into different foods and or desserts in a way that, you know, provides balance and a little more nutritional benefit. And really, you know, the veggies can either be sweet or mild flavored. Peekaboo is getting kids to eat beets. So I, I feel like that's a win. Jim, Jim, sorry. I, I just wanted to add in last night on the judges, like behind the scenes, there was like a full like you know, paragraphs of conversation around the cotton candy flavor that Jessica just mentioned with beets in it uh, and how people's kids literally like raided their fridges and were like, where are the beets? We want more beets after tasting it. Uh, <laughs> and, it, it, you know, I, I looked at it as like cotton candy. I would never taste that myself except for this competition. And it was just ridiculously delicious. Uh, and so I think it actually starts conversations sometimes with kids about what a beet is and, and why it, it, it could be interesting. And, and it really is uh, just delicious. And I guess you must get a load of feedback from parents. They love it. Uh, you know, parents of picky eaters particularly love it. Um, they seek it out and, and just generally look for all kinds of opportunities to, you know, have their kids eat more balanced or more diverse foods. But beyond that, just anybody in general, I mean, peekaboo is what every person wished existed when they were a kid, right? Like veggies that taste like ice cream. So the feedback's been really, really positive. Uh, at the beginning, obviously, you said how exciting it was to win. But what does it mean to your company to have won this in terms of moving forward? It's a really exciting opportunity that, that came at the perfect time. I mean, I, I just feel very fortunate um, because we received a lot of interest for our snack size minis um, in the Asian market and also South America. So this is just a perfect opportunity to be able to launch. You know, we print packaging with the California Seal, have assistance in even, you know, hopefully sourcing organic dairy and, and be able to market it and introduce it to the, you know, to the U.S. as well. It's just the timing is perfect. Everything seems to have aligned and to bring attention to such a new brand is also very exciting since we launched last year, you know, we're still pretty new. So to the extent that we can generate brand awareness and get, you know, industry giants behind us and supporting us and talking about us is super awesome. And obviously you don't want to run before you can walk, but are you planning on or hoping for expansion into different markets and new products, that kind of thing? Yeah, so right now we're focusing on ice cream and, and we're focusing on really strategic partners. Like, for example, in terms of export, our, our partner in Japan has experienced, you know, marketing, introducing new innovative products to that region. So everything, you know, our growth is certainly strategic. In terms of new products, it's in the pipeline, but certainly not this year. Of course, it'd be dairy snack products, um, all of hidden veggies. So, yeah, absolutely. It's um, I would say it's a brisk walk <laughs> because, you know, we, we've, we've had a lot of interest and success and growth in a very short period of time, but very managed growth. And now it's time to head across the Irish Sea, well, it is for me anyway, to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. It has been a pretty active week in the futures market, uh, both in butter and skim milk powder. Price movements haven't been haven't been huge. Prices down slightly across the board, apart from way where it has been up around twenty to thirty euros to the seven sixty level in quarter one. November December butter uh, remained around flat around the thirty three thirty thirty three thirty five level. Quarter one was also flat around the thirty three hundred level. Uh, quarter two was up around fifteen euros to uh, 3400 level and quarter three was up around 20 euros to 3460 level in uh, skimmel powder uh, we had the results of the o'neill tender uh, coming out um, which seemed to be a little bit negative for for prices from a futures perspective subsequently uh, november december remained steady around the 2190 level quarter one was down maybe around 20 euros to just under the 2200 level at around 2195 quarter two was off around 30 euros as well to around the 2230 level and quarter three was off around 25 euros to the 2250 level as i say way was up around 20 to 30 uh, euros to the 760 level 
All right. Thank you, Liam. We will catch up with you again next week when we open Advent Calendar Window number two. Stone X, formerly INCLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. Time to catch our breath after all those interviews and prepare for next week when it will be December and we will still be in lockdown. I think there are a lot of confused people now with all the different tiers and not knowing what is and isn't open, what they can and can't do, and where they can and can't go. As for the podcast, we already have most of the interviews done for next week and even some for the week after that. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do over the holidays, whether or not there'll be a podcast the Wednesday before Christmas. We shall see. I guess I could do a show of my funniest moments from the past year. That should take all of 11 seconds. That long, I hear you say. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast, wherever you're listening from, and that you will join us again a week from now. And so, until then, take care, stay safe, have a great week, and, as always, thanks for listening.